Good morning. If you would please turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 1. I'll be reading Philippians chapter 1 verses 18 through 20. Philippians 1, 18 through 20. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. Blessed is the reading of God's holy, infallible, inerrant, and powerful word. Father, pour out your blessing, the blessing of attentiveness to your word. That we would have the eyes of our hearts open enlightened to see the beauty of Christ, the glory of the gospel. Affect us, Father, by the Spirit, to the glory of your holy name. Amen. So when you face circumstances that look grim, when your trust in God's sovereignty begins to wane, feels like it's going to crash and burn. What is your first? What is your most important prayer request? Is it that, that all the unpleasant things in your circumstances be removed so that there's no temptation to desert Christ? Or is it that the Holy Spirit rise up within you and cause your heart to delight in Jesus above any and every circumstance and thus you bring Him glory in the midst of it? Here's the question our text poses to us this morning. How do we as believers rejoice when things all around are going terribly. When fear rises up. Maybe as many brothers and sisters have done throughout the centuries, when they faced martyrdom or the loss of a job or broken relationships or being shamed or shunned because of your faith, in Christ. How does one rejoice in the midst of that? Well, this morning Paul answers that question in his own life. And his answer is because he knows God's provision of the Holy Spirit, which will continually be given to him through and in answer to the prayers of others for him. He knows that those two things together will not allow him to cave in to cowardice. To cave in to ultimate despair. But in his dire situation here, 
It will cause him to find Christ better than life. It will be his joy in Christ, whether he gets released from prison or is executed by the state. And so this morning, the bulk of the time is going to be spent going step by step through the Word of God. Through God's inerrant, infallible Word, which comes through His Apostle Paul in this passage. And then I'll close with some implications for our own prayer lives. So, if you're there, Philippians 1, pick up at the end of verse 18. Now, remember Paul from last week has just said that even with bad motives from some Christian preachers in Rome, even with their bad motives, Christ is being preached. And because of that, I, Paul, I rejoice, I rejoice in the gospel, even though they mean to harm me in it. But now Paul lets us know that's not his only source of joy in what's happening there in Rome at the moment. He goes on to say, yes, and I will rejoice. That's a second joy. That second joy is based on three things in this passage. It's based on what Paul knows, number one. Number two, on what he anticipates the Holy Spirit to do. And number three, because Christ means more to him than life. First, he knows he will be delivered. Secondly, he expects that Christ will be exalted because of number three. Christ means more to him than everything else, including this life itself. The second half of verse 18 there. Yes, and I will rejoice. Paul is starting a new paragraph. In verse 18a, yes, he says, I do rejoice. I rejoice right now that Christ is being preached even through some men who have bad motives. But then he goes on, I also will continue in the future, tomorrow, next week, to rejoice. The verb rejoice there is in the future tense. And not only that, there are four verbs in verses 18 to 20, and all are in the future tense. Paul is anticipating what is ahead in this passage. Paul will go on rejoicing, he says. I will, in the future, continue to rejoice. Why? Well, he answers it in verses 19 to 21. For I will, yes, go on rejoicing. Why? For... Or because I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ 
will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. That's why. Oh, I hope that's why we're going to go slowly and see it. That's why he will go on rejoicing. Because verse 19 begins with the word for, meaning, I will rejoice because, because I know something. And the content that Paul knows is, I know that this will turn out for my deliverance. Therefore, I will rejoice. You see it? Yeah. Okay, let's get to this. So far, he has said in this passage that through his suffering over the previous years and there in prison in Rome, in the midst of it, God is spreading the gospel because of his suffering. God's up to something. Paul rejoices in the gospel. And that reality in the future will continue. It will turn out for my deliverance. Now, question. Deliverance from what? What is he saying? Is he going to rejoice because it's going to turn out for my deliverance from prison? Or from death? What does he mean by deliverance? Does he mean that I will triumph over my enemies down here? Again, look at it slowly. It will turn out for my, here's the Greek word, soteria. Salvation. Salvation is the normal translation for this word soteria. In theology, that's where we get the word soteriology, the study of salvation. Now, not always, but, but normally this word in the New Testament refers to one's relationship with God. I am in a position of salvation. Or, or I am saved. Now, in the Apostle Paul's letters... When he uses soteria, it usually refers to the final deliverance at the last judgment. Deliverance, salvation from the wrath to come and into, ushered into the glory of God and his happiness forever. Now, here in Philippians 1, the context is clear. His driving concern is not that he should be delivered or released from prison. Or that he be delivered from being executed by the government. Or even that if he must die, somehow it would be as relatively painless as possible. That's not what he's referring to. But his deliverance is that he, Paul, not do anything he should be ashamed of. But instead, that God would vindicate him as faithful in the end. That's why Paul rejoices. 
Salvation for Paul in verse 19 means that he won't fail to exalt Christ. But instead, Jesus will be glorified no matter how his impending trial before Caesar goes. In other words, the deliverance he seeks, it's going to be gained whether he's released from prison or whether he's executed. This deliverance that he's referring to is going to come. He's referring to his ultimate vindication before God. And then the next thing Paul wants us to see is how that's going to happen. Through what means will Paul be delivered from not exalting Christ? Through what means will Paul stand faithful, exalting Christ through all circumstances? Look at it. It's, it's very clear. It's right there in verse 19. For, the reason I will go on rejoicing is for or because I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my delight. There are two means to Paul's deliverance. And these two means will enable Paul to be vindicated during his trial. Whatever the outcome of it will be. The provision, that's a literal translation. Through the provision of the Spirit. Of the Holy Spirit. That's what he means by the Spirit of Jesus Christ. He's, he's provided to me. How? Constantly in response to the petitions, to the prayers of the Philippians on Paul's behalf. And the result of that is that Paul's ability to remain faithful and thus exalt Christ and be vindicated on Judgment Day through your prayers. And thus the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. I will be delivered. Paul is clearly, implicitly appealing to the Philippians' support by guiding their prayers for him. Especially now in this very intense time of trial. Think about that just for a moment. Here's Paul. He's in prison. He, he's awaiting a capital trial before Caesar. And Paul is not pleading with the Philippian church that they pray that he be freed from prison. It's not what he's praying for or asking here. He's not praying that the result would be I don't get convicted and executed. But his prayer request is while I face all of this in whichever way it turns out, I'm asking you, Philippians, to pray for what is most important. My deliverance from bringing shame 
by my sin and my doubt or my denying Christ and the truth. But that instead, that the Holy Spirit would constantly fill me with faith and joy in Christ in order that in the midst of whatever pain or whatever disappointments may come in the future, Christ will be honored in my joy in Him above all things. That poses a question for us. Are our prayers always or least predominantly asking that we get the job. We get out of jail. We not be executed. We, we get the physical healing. It's, I don't like the uncomfortableness of it. Is that what our prayers are mainly driving toward? Or that whatever the outcome, of this, that, or the other situation, we pray for the supply of the Holy Spirit so that we will honor Christ in the midst of it. We'll honor Christ no matter the temporal circumstances so that this will turn out for our final deliverance from shaming Christ. So that it will turn out for our final vindication before God. Paul is asking them to pray the prayer that he already said that he prays for the Philippians. Remember back in verses 9 and 11? Think about this prayer Paul prays for them. He's essentially saying, pray this for me. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent. Make choices about what's best. Honoring Christ. So, so that you would be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and the praise of God. So, in verse 19, Paul is saying, look, his ground foundation for rejoicing is that he knows that in whatever happens to him, he will be vindicated by God as one who is not acting in a shameful way, but is honoring Christ. And this vindication, he said in verse 19, it will come in answer to the prayers of the Philippians. In that, in that the Holy Spirit will enable Paul to bear witness faithfully before his accusers and judges. That's verse 19. Now, verse 20 is directly connected to turn out for my deliverance. Verse 20 is connected to those words, 
by the word as in the ESV. Originally, in the Greek, it's, it's kata, according to. So, in other words, verse 20 is restating verse 19 by defining specifically what he means by deliverance. Soteria, salvation. Let's read it again slowly. I will rejoice because I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance as it or according to my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. But that with full courage now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So look at it. He does the negative, positive. He says it negatively, and then he says it positively. Negatively, that I, Paul, not be ashamed. Positively, that Christ be honored. Let's look at those two. First, the negative. Paul's longing, his expectation, his, his longing for the deliverance is to not be covered with shame. Shame by not having honored Christ. Not having exalted Jesus and the gospel in what lay ahead. To be ashamed would be to be ashamed of the gospel. You know those great words from Paul written a few years earlier? For I am not ashamed of the gospel. Now, why would he use the negative? Because he knows the pressure. And he knows his sin. He knows what it is to be a Christian in this present evil generation. He knows the world and the culture and its ridicule and shame and harm that it can do for standing for the gospel. He doesn't say that in Romans 1.16 in a vacuum. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it and it alone is the power of God unto salvation to every human being who would believe it. And so here, here's Paul now, a couple years after writing that now, He's awaiting trial before Caesar in Rome. He, he has confidence that whatever happens, he, he won't be put to shame, a shame that has nothing to do with public opinion. He's not saying, oh, I don't want them to shame me. Or No, 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 no. This is not to be ashamed before his Savior. 
It refers to his standing before God. And the lesson for all of us Christians is that our confidence in God, it doesn't rest in earthly circumstances. It's a confidence that's rooted in God's promises for eternity. It's not rooted in this world's approval. It's not rooted in the culture's approval. The context is clear. The world, it may so disapprove of Paul's Christian stance and testimony of salvation from a wrathful, holy God, of his testimony as an eyewitness of the resurrection of Jesus, the world may so disapprove of that that it may legally put Paul to death. That's the circumstance. But he says, I'm going to rejoice because you're praying for me. And thus the Spirit of Christ will continually be my source which is my expectation, which is my hope, that I will not at all be ashamed. But instead, Christ, now, as He's always been up to this point, He will be honored. It's literally the word exalted in my body, whether by life or by death. We believers today were meant to pray that no matter the circumstances, no matter the state or the county pressure for churches not to meet, no matter the sickness or the disease or the health crisis or the tragedy that may come or the struggles in marriage in all of life, no matter any of that, we are to pray that our trust lies in God's faithfulness to empower us to cherish Christ as our supreme treasure in the midst of it, all and above it all. I mean, do you, do you think Paul knew the words of Jesus from Mark 8, 34 to 38? And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, Jesus said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous 
and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father and of the holy angels. Paul would be ashamed and not vindicated if his Lord were not glorified and exalted through him in his impending coming trial. That's the negative, that I not be ashamed, but positively is that Christ would be honored, magnified, or exalted. And notice carefully the words. Paul avoids saying that I, Paul, I would exalt Christ. Well, see, there's a truth there, but it's not the way he chose to say it. But he used the passive voice that Christ will be exalted. Christ becomes the subject of the verb, and Paul is simply the instrument by which the greatness of Christ shines through. And how? He says, with full courage, or New American, with all boldness. So, so here is contrast here with the negative and the positive. That I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. With full courage, honored, exalted, then he says, in my body. Why? Because that's the issue. Because the question of bodily life or death was hanging in the balance for Paul. If he is convicted, it is a death penalty. And so for Paul, whether he's acquitted and released or whether he's found guilty and executed by the state, both of them will lead to Christ being exalted. That's what he's talking about. The exaltation of Christ through his death or through his release. And he'll go on to unfold that. We'll see next time. That's all encompassing for our lives in any circumstance, in every place we may find ourselves today or in the future. The question is, will we act shamefully or will Christ be glorified in us or through us? You know, just one more time, what I want to just do and everything that I've said so far about verses 19 and 20, I just want to one more shot at it by reading to you my paraphrase of what I've been trying to unfold here. Paul is saying, not only do I rejoice in the gospel being preached in these difficult circumstances in Rome, 
But I will go on rejoicing because I know something. I know that because you are praying that the Spirit of Christ would continually help me glorify Jesus in these difficult circumstances, therefore these circumstances will result in my being delivered from failing to have Christ exalted in my life. In other words, I will be delivered according to my deepest desire and hope, which is that in my impending trial, and whatever the result of it, I will not be put to shame, but instead Christ will also be magnified now in these circumstances as he has always been magnified since I have become a Christian. And so he will be exalted now with all boldness, supplied by the Holy Spirit, magnified in my body whether I'm released and live or am convicted. And executed. So. What are you facing. In your life now. None of us are facing that circumstance. There are many Christians today who are facing that. Circumstance in this world. But what are you facing in. Your work life. Your career. Relationships, struggles there, in your marriage, or how about in your evangelism, person X or Y or Z? What are you facing in decisions that you are making concerning the government shutdowns during this very strange and bizarre time? Or just fill in the gap with whatever comes to your mind. Fears. Struggles and uncertainties. Here's the question. How do you want to be prayed for first and foremost? Is it? Pray that God brings me all the worldly comfort I can possibly get. Or like Paul, is it? Pray that the Holy Spirit sustain my faith to delight in Christ no matter what happens on earth in these various situations. How we pray for our own souls and how we pray for others is determined by how we believe God acts. If you, like Paul in Philippians 1, believe that God changes people's desires so that they make new and make right and Christ-glorifying choices, well then... You will really believe in prayer in times of crisis. And so as I close, the best teacher on praying, teaching us how to pray for our own souls, how to pray for one another in the body of Christ, the best teacher is the Bible. So what do we first need then? Particularly in the hardest of times, fear comes. Well, I stand for Christ. 
when I allow the Spirit to work in me and repent and glorify Christ again and again. The first thing our souls need daily is an inclination for God. Our flesh, our sin nature which is with us cannot please God. It does not want to. It does not want to submit to God and it is beckoning constantly to us. Therefore, every day we wake up, we are in desperate need to have our hearts inclined toward or turn to God as our treasure. And so here's the question. Where does that come from? Where does that want to? I want to want to want God. It comes from God. So we turn to an example of prayer in Psalm 119, verse 36. Pray this way. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. There it is. God, change my heart. And then the next thing we constantly need is for as we turn to God's testimonies, which is the Bible, it's the Word of God. What we need is not just to open up the physical pages and use our minds to read, which is, that's how you do read. You use your mind and you must use your mind. But we need God to work on our hearts in that process so that we see. That our hearts see. That our hearts love what's there. That's Psalm 119, verse 18. Hear the prayer of the Bible. Lord, open my eyes. In order that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Okay. That's not a prayer to say, God, tell me what the Bible means. No, it means what it says. Read it carefully and slowly and think. What this is saying. Don't let my heart be hardened toward it. Let me see it and the beauty in it. That's how Paul prays for the church in Ephesians 1.18. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know. That's not merely an intellectual knowing. That you may, you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of His glorious inheritance for every believer. He, he wants us to grasp it with our hearts. That's what leads Paul to say next week, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. What we really want from the Word of God, from the Scripture, and from the work of the Spirit in us is that our hearts daily would be satisfied with God and not the world. Pray Psalm 90, verse 14. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love. 
that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. And so during our times of great stress and battling the flesh or pain or fear, like Paul dealt with, we need strength in joy. And where does it come from? Well, here's how Paul prays. In Ephesians 3, 16, I pray that God would give you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being. And so we get these two prayers from Philippians 1. And it is my prayer that your joy, excuse me, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may make right choices. Approve what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. And yes, I, Paul, I will rejoice for I know, Philippians, that through your prayers... And the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. All these trials in front of me here in Rome will turn out for my deliverance. From in any way shaming Christ. But instead honoring Christ in my body. Whether I live or whether I die. And listen to the sweet, true words of our Lord on the night before his death. If you abide in me and my words, scripture, the truth, the gospel, what's most important my words abide in you? Well then, ask whatever you wish. And I promise you, it will be done for you. Why? Because if we're walking in Him, in the Spirit. And the Scripture is totally revitalizing our lives. You will ask the way Paul asked. You will be most concerned that you not shame Christ, but glorify Him. You will be most concerned about the fruit on the tree of your life than earthly circumstances. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit. And so prove to be my disciples.
He began that work. Philippians 1.6. He will bring it to pass through praying. He is faithful. He will do it. Let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for the mastery of Holy Scripture. You have chosen from eternity past to have Paul sit chained in Rome. And under particular time-bound local circumstances dictate a letter to the Philippian church. That we hear the work of the Holy Spirit in him that we may see and learn for our own lives. You are good. Oh, we do pray together that you would continue to glorify your name through each and every one of our individual lives as sovereign grace and as a community. That Christ would be honored to the glory of your holiness. 